Welcome to episode 4 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. This week, I'd like to welcome back Mr. Fractures from the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter groups. Welcome back, Frack. Hi, Blaine. Thanks for having me back. Oh, glad to have you back, <laughs> especially to discuss this story. Oh, the best DD story ever. Yeah, if I were the one making this list and the only voter, this would not have been number four. This would have been number one. So, spoilers on the end of the discussion, but <laughs> we are looking at Daredevil Born Again, issues 227 through 233 of the first volume of Daredevil, written by Frank Miller, penciled by David Mazzucchelli, inked by David Mazzucchelli. Six of the seven issues were colored by Christy Max Scheel. One issue was colored by Richmond Lewis, who was the wife of Daisy Mazzucchelli, who kept trying to bring her away from her commercial painting career and into comics so that they could work together more often. Lettered by Joe Rosen, edited by Ralph Macchio, and released under Jim Shooter as editor-in-chief. Cover dates range from February 1986 to August 1986, with release dates ranging from October 22nd, 85 to April 22nd, 86. And as I already mentioned, this is number four in the countdown. And if we're going to have a coherent discussion about it, we should do the plot right now. Sounds good. All right. So it starts off with issue 227. Page one is Karen Page. Now, Karen Page was Dee Dee's first love interest right from the first issue. He eventually revealed his secret identity to her. She just couldn't take the stress of dating a superhero whose life was constantly in danger and ended up leaving New York, going to the West Coast to try and start her film career, where she basically migrated over to being part of Ghost Rider's guest cast. And when the original Johnny Blaze Ghost Rider title folded, she kind of disappeared. Well, now we see her, her film career has not gone well. We learn on this first page that she's a drug addict. And she sells Daredevil's secret identity for a fix. That makes its way up the criminal food chain out of Mexico and into the hands of the Kingpin, who has Wesley kill everyone who's touched it while he tests the information over a period of six months. And over that time, everything is going wrong for Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil. Uh, his girlfriend dumps him by cassette tape, not knowing that he can read had she just written things because, you know, he hides his abilities to maintain his secret identity as a superhero. The bank is saying that they haven't received his last two mortgage payments. The IRS is saying that he's going to be up for audit and they've frozen all of the money he's got. So he can't actually pay the mortgage payments, even though the money left his account, but the bank has no record of it. He ends up getting subpoenaed to appear in a grand jury hearing, but not as a witness. There's a police lieutenant Manolis who's accusing him of perjury or convincing one of his clients to perjure himself in the Hendricks case. So meanwhile, Foggy comes home and, you know, his apartment has been robbed. You know, and Glory is there. We find out that things are not going well where, you know, the word of this Matt Murdock story and the accusations made their way to the Daily Bugle. Ben Urich figured out earlier in Frank Miller's run that Matt Murdock and Daredevil are one and the same. So he knows that there's something wrong here, but can't explain why to the editorial team. So... Foggy and Glory are getting closer and closer while Matt goes to visit Lieutenant Manolis and overhears enough of the conversation to realize that, yeah, this previously clean and honest police officer has a sick son who needs treatment. So it's one of those uniquely American stories like Breaking Bad that just couldn't happen in other countries because, hey, free healthcare. So as things build, Kingpin is satisfied because what he's doing to Matt Murdock is having an impact on Daredevil's psychology. 
So Kingpin knows this information he has is real, and Matt Murdock is Daredevil. So during the deposition, you know, Murdock is no longer able to practice law after the accusations by Manolis, but Kingpin does notice that Foggy Nelson really does a phenomenal job of managing to make sure that disbarment is Matt Murdock's only punishment, whereas he was expecting jail time. Now, Karen Page is in rough shape, and she wants to get back to Matt to apologize and to get his protection. Meanwhile, Matt's coming home one day, and his brownstone explodes. And the last panel of the issue is where he's standing by the wreckage of his home, and he realizes that, yeah, this is not a series of bad luck and random events and just fate conspiring against him. The final panel is, I never would have connected it to you. Nothing about it said gangster until this. It was a nice piece of work, Kingpin. You shouldn't have signed it. With Matt Murdock just holding up what's left of his DD tunic, crying in front of the wreckage of his home. Issue 228. We see a little bit more with Foggy and Glory getting closer. Meanwhile, Matt has $10 to his name, so he found a hotel that makes change. It's a tiny, tiny hotel room where, you know, apparently it's eight bucks a night and left him $2 for breakfast. Now the Kingpin's feeling pleased with himself looking over the city, and now he's going to control it and run it now, while Matt fantasizes about beating the Kingpin, possibly to death. But he tries to phone back in the days when you could phone a phone number and it would tell you what the current time was. That's what he's intending to do, only he phones Foggy instead. And Matt is starting to crumble, and he's saying, oh yeah, Foggy's part of it, he's involved. The manager's coming to tell him that yeah, he's past checkout time and he then needs to check out her pay, but Matt overreacts and chokes him into unconsciousness. You know, back to the, the kingpin, he's getting reports about how Matt Murdock, he was on a subway when there was muggers and he didn't act right away. He did eventually stop the muggers, but then he also beat one of the security guards or policemen who showed up as well. Then when he thinks he's phoning Foggy to tell him what's going on, and we see the side of a conversation where he's reacting as though Foggy is telling him, no, this is what you do, and he's getting advice. This time he actually was phoning at the tone, the time will be 10.32 phone number. We see scenes of Karen Page still coming back. While, you know, Ben Urich is arguing with J. Jonah Jameson about how to handle the Murdoch story. And Murdoch goes to see the Kingpin. This time they actually fight, but the Kingpin knows what's going on. He was prepared for this. He knew Matt would be coming. And in Matt's state, Kingpin easily beats him into submission. He then puts him in a cab, douses him in whiskey, and has him dumped in this stolen cab into the river. Figuring there's not going to be an investigation, it's going to look like he got drunk, killed himself after everything that had happened to him. Only in the last panel of that page, Matt's eyes open. The news eventually comes, there is blood, and bloody evidence of a struggle. There's a shattered windshield, a safety belt, severed by the windshield's glass, and what must have been a hideous effort of will. There is no corpse. There is no corpse. There is no corpse. And the last panel is a wet Matt Murdock crawling into an alley with some homeless. Issue 229, you know, it's flashback to Daredevil's origins, including conversations with his dad and his dad alone. And then, you know, a little bit with a, a nun who comes and makes him promise not to tell what's going on and he can use his gifts. We learn that Matt is essentially homeless. He's living in an alley with a couple homeless people right now. Meanwhile, it's Christmas time. Foggy and Glory are out by, I believe it's the Rockefeller Center in Manhattan with the giant Christmas tree and the, the ice rink. The one that shows up in movies and was in an earlier issue of Uncanny X-Men in the 70s. So Glory and Foggy get mugged, but Foggy manages to stop the mugger with a bowling ball. Meanwhile, Ben Urich goes to visit Nick Manolis, so he's figured out what's going on with Manolis and that it, he's probably being bribed for the sake of saving his kid's life. Karen Page is still working her way back to America. 
Matt Murdock's in rough shape, ends up getting kicked by or hit by a car. We get Turk back as you know, he's got a new scam where he's gonna dress up like a fake Santa to rip people off. Only Matt Murdock is aware of what's going on, tells him to take the the Santa suit off, gets stabbed by Turk, and we get a series of scenes cut back and forth as Matt Murdock eventually stops Turk, as Karen Page makes a deal with a guy named Paolo to do whatever it takes to get back to North America, and she's been starring in a few adult films that Paolo is aware of, and he says, well, you know, if you sort of provide me live shows and services, I'll get you back. Meanwhile, Yurik gets through enough to Manolis that he agrees to snitch, but his nurse is not very happy about that. And when they keep coming up, the nurse actually beats Manolis and breaks part of Ben Yurik's hand. Matt finds his way back to Fog's Fogwell's gym, where he and his father before him did a lot of training, and that nun who visited Matt in the hospital finds Matt, while Karen Page does what she needs to do to get back to North America. Then the last page of the issue is the only one that involves the kingpin in this particular issue. He's still being driven, you know, almost insane by the fact that there was no corpse. He went through all this trouble to destroy and murder Matt Murdock, only he's not dead. So, you know, the man he thought he'd murdered is alive. Six hours spent sweating and straining, seeking the limits of his own inhuman strength, seeking that place past the thought. There is no corpse. What is it about Murdoch? He was a minor concern, a promising talent to be observed and cataloged and occasionally even flattered, but, and perhaps one day to be turned to the Kingpin's way, but he is more than this. Now he is much more than this. He always was, and I, I have shown him that a man without hope is a man without fear. So the Kingpin is starting to realize, yeah, maybe this wasn't such a good plan. So then, on to issue 230, where Matt is alive and in the care of Sister Maggie and the rest of the nuns. The Kingpin is very upset that Murdoch is alive. He's doing a lot of training and beating up his underlings, as he was way back when he first appeared in Daredevil. Karen Page and Paolo are still coming back, and she knows she's going to need to be saved from the man she's with. While Foggy and Gloria are getting a lot more involved, Manolis is found seriously wounded right, and actually killed in the hospital parkade while Ben Yurik gets his hand looked after, and everything is just coming together. Kingpin calls for Nuke to show up. Ben Yurik is home trying to deal with this with his wife. Matt is having a difficult time dealing with his hyperactive senses in the world around him. And Karen can't reach Matt because his old number's disconnected, but she is able to reach Foggy. And he's starting to realize how much Karen has changed in the time since they saw him. Then we get to actually one of my favorite J. Jonah Jameson moments in comics. It's not in the Spider-Man one, but, you know, in this title where Jameson's talking to Ben Yurick saying, I've seen this happen plenty of times, Ben. It never fails to make me sick. Reporter gets his blood up for a story, threatens to quit if I don't let him go for it, and then suddenly loses all interest. By the way, how's the hand? Listen, Yurick, there are things you just don't let happen in this racket. Number one is you never get scared away from a story. Not when you've got the most powerful weapon in the world on your side. He's holding a newspaper saying this is five million readers worth of power. It can depose mayors, it can destroy presidents. And it's been due to get into the kingpin for years now. But it needs you to do it. You know, and Ben says nothing. Jameson just says, you're lucky I don't fire you. Get out of my office. When Ben leaves the office, the janitor says, you're a good boy. Remember the kingpin's watching. You got five more fingers. So then back to Karen and her rough relationship. Back to Matt with Sister Maggie. There's so much intercutting in the way this story is told. It's kind of hard to do a coherent summary. But Ben's back at the bugle and he gets a call. While he's arguing with the editors, because he asked for a puff piece but is having a hard time doing it, Manolis has called him saying, yeah, he's not dead. He wants to do a full confession about how the kingpin helped him frame it. The nurse shows up, says, my employer would like you to hear this, Mr. Yurik. 
and kills Lieutenant Manolis while Yurik is on the phone with, you know, Bugle editors arguing around him. So, you know, the nurse says, thank you for listening. He's fully aware of what's going on. Meanwhile, Murdoch is in bed and he finds strength in the cross that's around his neck. He knows what's going on. He's going to come back. Karen and Foggy are meeting. The Kingpin has learned that Nuke, the guy he's trying to hire, is in Nicaragua, but he wants him here. Ben Yurik is still disturbed. He's been told that he needs to see a psychiatrist because, you know, he still won't take the the bandage in the cast off his broken hand, even though it should have come off yesterday. It's really a montage of scenes where people are, you know, starting to take control of their life again. So Foggy decides to help Karen, and he's going to get her out of there. Sister Maggie prays for Daredevil, and Ben Yurik has kind of steeled himself. He has decided he is going to go through and tell the story. Meanwhile, the King of Inns people meet with Melvin Potter, a.k.a. the Gladiator, you know, the costume designer who way back when decided... Uh, these guys, there's nothing special about them against, except their costumes. I can build a costume and be a villain and became the gladiator. So he's being asked to build a daredevil costume. Sister Maggie visits Matt Murdock, who asks her if she's his mother. She says, of course not. And Matt knows that she's lied. So issue 231, you know, the people are asking the kingpin why he's putting so much effort into Matt Murdock, because obviously he hasn't told his underlings that Matt and Daredevil are the same person. Matt is back and training at Fogwell's gym and manages to knock the punching bag off of the chain. Ben Yurik is back at the bugle and starts telling the complete story. The nurse finds out about it and heads to Yurik's home to speak to Doris. While she's there, Matt Murdock eavesdrops on Ben Yurik while in a cafe that he's eating at. Yurik goes home to find the nurse there, and she's actually tried to kill his wife Doris by, you know, choking her on one of his neckties, hanging her from the shower. Ben manages to, to save her, although she's still in rough shape, while the nurse is taking care of his police coverage, but Matt comes in and takes care of this nurse. But Ben is not willing to stand for this, though. She tried to kill his wife. So when he comes back to the living room, he's got a razor blade in hand. He's ready to fight this nurse to protect his wife. And he's there saying, I stand there for a full minute, holding the razor with no idea how to use it, before I notice the handcuffs and her broken jaw. It sinks in. Matt, you're alive. Melvin Potter calls Ben Yurik because he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to hurt Daredevil because Daredevil's helped him, but he also doesn't want people around him to get hurt, which is the threat if he doesn't build the Daredevil costume. Matt overhears enough of the conversation to go visit Melvin Potter and tell him, make the costume, no one will be hurt. He's in shadows because he's out of costume, but, you know, Melvin says, pleasure to hear your voice, Daredevil. He's smiling, so he's got the approval. Meanwhile, Foggy is helping Karen get through her withdrawal. She finds Paolo outside and understandably freaks out, so Foggy calls the police. Meanwhile, a killer that the Kingpin has hired, who's just completely psychotic, but not Nuke, has the fake Daredevil costume that he was allowed to do, and they're coming over to Foggy's apartment, not realizing that Matt Murdock is riding on top of the car. There's a shootout between Paolo and the police, while the guy who's in the fake Daredevil costume is assigned to kill Karen and Foggy to just put the final nail in Matt Murdock's coffin, but Matt's waiting for him, takes him down, and strips the uniform off him before the police show up. Now, Paolo and the police have a rough fight, but, you know, Daredevil finds Karen before she takes another injection full of drugs to get her fix, and gets her out of there. The story hits, and, you know, the guy in the fake Daredevil costume was stripped naked for reasons unknown. Well, it's obviously because Daredevil didn't want the plan to succeed, and he still needs a costume. A couple of the Kingpin's men are dead. A couple police officers are dead. Paolo is hurt and brought into custody, with many outstanding warrants arrest him. Doris is still in rough shape, but she's healing, and Ben Yurik is going to find out what where Mac Murdock is, and what's become of him. 232 we get our first introduction to Nuke, who is someone who is obviously manipulated, probably started with Vietnam 
PTSD, and you know they've used that against him, given him a lot of physical upgrades, although we don't know that on the first page. But he's almost like a military weapon. They just drop him into a war zone, and he will just kill everything in sight. And he's been hired to come back to the States by Kingpin. You know, Daredevil's helping Karen get through her withdrawal while Ben Yurik and Foggy have an interesting conversation. They both know Matt Murdock is Daredevil. They don't know the other one knows. So they're a little guarded. But as readers, we know that they both know it. Gives a nice context to it. So meanwhile, Nuke is still on his way back to the States. Foggy has been hired by the Kingpin, who you know recognized his talent. It was a great offer for him. But, you know, Foggy's got corporate work. It's okay. The pay is great. But some of the work they do, he's starting to realize it's not legitimate. So Matt shaves for the first time in a long time. He's had a beard for most of the story. Then Yurik goes to visit, you know, the nurse Lois in the prison who's ready to spill the beans. But then, you know, another officer starts killing people there. And Ben Yurik fights to save them and ends up killing the corrupt officer in self-defense. And he has to deal with that, with Glory taking the pictures. Nuke is finally brought before the Kingpin, who knows how to manipulate Nuke's extreme patriotism, so he's got his office completely decorated with things that evoke the American flag, and he's basically saying, yeah, there's a daredevil somewhere in Hell's Kitchen who's making the world a worse place. Matt is working as a cook in, you know, that same cafe that Ben Yurik has been at for all the story, which, you know, he said was a great place to write because the food is so bad, it's dead. Now it's packed and everyone's raving about the food. When Nuke gets dropped off in Hell's Kitchen, and just starts going on a rampage. So, of course, Matt takes his uniform, and he's out there in action. It's the first time he's really back in the red tights in the story. And that's, you know, how this issue ends. He hit, we don't get a clear shot of him. We just see gloves and such as he hits Nuke in the side of the face with his billy club. Nuke says, give me a red. Well, someone's passing him a red pill. And then the final page is just Daredevil in the red suit, surrounded by flames. And we go from here to the oversized final issue. 233, with the all-up battle between Nuke and Daredevil in Hell's Kitchen. Daredevil's usual tactics don't work because he's not just a regular guy. He's, you know, had his skin reinforced with plastics and things like this. As they're fighting, Daredevil does manage to put him down, puts him through power lines and whatnot. He does take a beating. A helicopter blows up, and the Avengers show up to help contain the damage. Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, they take Nuke into custody. Some of the Kingpin's underlings are questioning his process. He just, you know, chokes his sub-boss in a sauna, tells the others now we understand each other. Meanwhile, the fallout of Nuke's attack on Hell's Kitchen has left a lot of wounded, many of whom are in the church under the care of Sister Maggie and the others. Daredevil realizes he's been tracked by Captain America, and he's, you know, amazed at Captain America's fitness. It's actually a rather nice little internal monologue taking him there. They have a meeting on the rooftop, because Cap's main concern is, yeah, this guy that they just brought in, and the government said, no, we're bringing him into custody. Don't do this. Don't do that. They're you know, sort of out of Avengers control. He had the American flag tattooed on his face, which Matt hadn't noticed, of course, being blind, but it bothers Captain America enough that he starts digging into it. So, And he's as he digs into it, he realizes that the same project that created him, even though that failed, they didn't want to let it die. They kept trying to reproduce it and recreate it. And 20 other people have been given the super soldier serum or some other similar process. Only one of them has survived which is Frank Simpson, codename Nuke. Nuke sees the newspaper coverage as reported by Ben Urich and, you know, steals the red pills that really push him. Those of you who've watched Jessica Jones know what I'm talking about. It's the same character. He was just Frank Simpson on that, but he's Nuke in here. You know, the Kingpin's getting accolades from other businessmen as he's starting to go legitimate. Meanwhile, Daredevil's suiting up. Captain America manages to put Nuke down because he was in a government facility where Cap was. While Daredevil's going to clean up the Kingpin stuff, 
Now, that diner that he worked at that everyone was eating at that got blown up during the attack, Daredevil manages to take $30,000 fed by compulsive gamblers to clever con men and, you know, about to be laundered in the Kingpin's legitimate empire, he's going to donate it to have that diner rebuilt and start putting Hell's Kitchen back together. So, you know, Daredevil intervenes as Cap is fighting with Nuke. This time, Daredevil and Cap are really on the same side. Soldier's are saying, we can't let you do this. You know, Cap says, I respect that lieutenant, and then knocks out a line of about six of them at once. While Daredevil is driving Nuke away in a cab, Captain America follows, and Daredevil delivers Nuke to the Daily Bugle. And with this, everything has been revealed. So Daredevil's got the goods on the kingpin that he stole with the $30,000. And, you know, his position now as a legitimate businessman is destroyed. Well, on the last page, Matt is still not able to practice law, but it does look like he and Karen are going to live happily ever after. Well, that was a great job, Blaine. Wow. I mean, my my synopsis is much briefer than yours. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, this is is a story that uh, deserves such detail, if I'm honest, you know. This is my favorite Frank Miller DD story. And in fact, it's probably my favorite Daredevil story, full stop. I've I've read quite a bit of it. I I read all of Bendis' run, but nothing resonated with me as much as um, as much as uh, uh, this story did. I don't know, you, you're the bigger Daredevil fan. Um, does this rate high up high up at the top? It does. I have read, I'm a little bit behind on the Charles Soule run. I haven't read past his first issue at the time of this recording, but I have read everything from DD number one until then. Mm. And, you know, a lot of people know that Daredevil is my number one favorite. A lot of people have said, well, yeah, of course, you're going to say Daredevil's Born Again should be higher on the list because Daredevil is your favorite character, that's a chicken and the egg problem. I appreciated Daredevil. This is the story that put him at number one on my favorite heroes list. Oh, well, you know, Daredevil isn't my favorite Marvel superhero. However, if I had to pick a great Marvel-related story, Born Again would definitely be, well, it would probably be higher than what it is here at the moment, if I'm honest with you. You know, this this (laughs) this is a complete story, as in, Anyone could pick this up as a trade. I've got, I've got the collected hardcover, um, and just read this mm-hmm. through and be fully satisfied at the end. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, th- that last page with just Matt. I mean, because you don't get to see him smiling often, do you? Let's be honest. No. But him smiling with Karen Page on that last, that last splash page. Uh, you know, I could just close the book and never read another Daredevil comic in my life, and still be happy that I got a satisfactory ending to that character story. It's so well done. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and this absolutely can be read by someone. I actually have a friend who's an English teacher in the area and an art teacher. So she also appreciates the comic medium that I, you know, often gift her collected editions, you know, just as the kinds of things she'd be interested in. And for a while, she was with a guy who didn't have a lot of respect for comics and didn't believe anything would be going on. And I'd already given her this collection. And he was basically trash talking the entire medium when I was there. Yeah. And I, I told him, I'll make you a deal. I pulled Daredevil Born Again off the shelf, put a bookmark at the end of issue 227, so I said, read from the first page to that bookmark. Mm. And if you still don't think there's potential for the medium to be actual literature and art, then, you know, I'll, I'll never argue with you again. He not only read up to the bookmark, when he, you know, he set the bookmark aside, kept reading, and hushed anyone who tried to speak in the same room as him until he finished that book. <laughs> Right, this I wouldn't I wouldn't just put this as the number one Marvel story. I would put this as my favorite superhero story of any medium, comics, movies, you name it. This says a lot not just about the man, but about the villain. 
Oh yeah, I mean there are there are there are a number of arcs going on here, but also um, uh, I mean I might be wrong about this, but this is um, this the sort of uh, breaking the hero down and then the hero's resurrection now is 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 quite passe because because loads of stories have this now because most people uh, most writers are now writing for the trade and the easiest way to write a story would be to to um, drag the drag the hero down and then to watch the hero uh, climb up from the ashes like a phoenix. Uh, and succeed despite the odds. But back then, um, this was this kind of story was new, mm-hmm. and Frank had gone away. He he had his his seminal run uh, with Klaus Janssen, um, and then went away for a while. And then there were loads of sort of almost inventory type stories in between, you know, written by Denny O'Neill, Jim Owsley, and uh, with art by Masukeli. But when but Miller comes back. And it's almost like his mission is to finish, like to write the final Daredevil story in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, he's in, and he really succeeds. And the collaboration with Mazzucchelli is just, it's, it's, it's like poetry. I don't, I mean, uh, I don't know how else to describe it. The, the art and the words, they, they're such, they, they, the, the marriage together is, is, is just, is flawless. I mean, you know, we were, we were, uh, on on the messenger last night, and it just certain certain dialogues like "there is no corpse," uh, "a man mm-hmm. without hope is a man without fear." You immediately know what part of the story that happened in, and you know oh, yeah. the greatest description of Captain America is on page one fifty six of the hardcover: the so- a soldier with a voice that could command a god. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just amazing stuff. And it is, and the 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 other half of that line is, and that's exactly what it does. Yeah. Cut to the panel of Thor doing what Cap just told him to do. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, th- I mean, Kingpin has an amazing arc in this. I mean, I I never remember Kingpin as sinister portrayed as sinister as he is portrayed in this one. It's like he gets he gets the information about Daredevil's secret identity, and he doesn't just fly off to sort out Matt Murdock. No, he's going to test the evidence. But before he does that, mm-hmm. he wants to make sure that anyone who has touched that piece of paper is dead. And that is mm-hmm. so, I mean, look, I, I read the, the Miller Jansen run a long time ago, but I'm not convinced that the Kingpin was ever portrayed as this sort of mafiosa type. I mean, this is, this is sort of vendetta. This is sort of, you know, mafia level mm-hmm. stuff, isn't it? He's not oh, just yeah. a gangster. He's like, you know, people need to die. It's like when the first guy questions his, uh, his use of funds, he, he gives him the value of his shares. And then when they all leave, um, Wesley tells him that he's due to go on a skiing holiday. And all he says is, compound fracture, both legs. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's just, uh, it's so vile. And he then, you know, he goes on to, to, once he's tested it, he slowly destroys Matt's life, takes his money away, takes his career mm-hmm. away from him. And then finally, he can't resist but blow up the building. And it's mm-hmm. funny. You think, you think if, he, if he hadn't blown up the building, Matt may never have figured out what was going on. And we would never have got the story we got. Oh, yeah. That final panel of issue 227 is my all-time favorite comic book panel. With Matt holding that tunic and saying, it's a nice piece of work, Kingpin. You shouldn't have signed it. And, and you know, even after that, it's, it's all about the, the guy coming back and reporting to kingpin and telling me exactly what happened don't leave any details out you know and he's he's tr- you know he 
when when Matt Burdock, uh, sorry, when Matt comes to him comes to his office, you know, the secretary says he's been expecting you, and and he just takes him down in the most violent way, mm-hmm. and then chucks him in the river, <laughs> you know, in this in this in this taxi cab where the the doors have been sealed shut by rust, and he's been covered in alcohol. But that last panel where you see his eyes open, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh my god. Oh my God. And then you turn over to the next page where he's smiling. He's very happy with himself. And the last two panels are, there is no corpse. And you can see his eyes. He's angry again. There is no corpse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know how you feel, but you were talking about the, in your synopsis, the splash page. Uh, it's 53 on this thing, which is uh, basically Matt Murdoch, I suppose, climbing out of the river and he, uh, you know, walking across, coming across these homeless guys sitting there and the, I almost think that that splash page shouldn't have been there. And this issue should have ended on there is no corpse and just go to the next issue rather than having that splash page. Cause it's, it's, yeah. I, you know, I think that, well, I think that's, that's one of the, that's the only thing that I probably disagree with in this, uh, in, in this yeah. thing. Yeah. The, the, the only thing I would have changed is that page. Cause as you said, yeah, we, we know there's no corpse. I think yeah. it would have been yeah. better with a bit of ambiguity. Yeah. I also get that. You know, they had to hit a very specific page count. Yeah, there's I nothing suppose, I would yeah. have repaced or rearranged up to that point. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I would have. My preference: lose that splash page. Just have a blank page with one more text box saying "There is no corpse." Yes. Put the third one on a page on its own with nothing else. That would be awesome. You're quite right. And then what does he do? He says, "Okay, he must be alive. I know. I'll put a. I'll put a. I'll put a lunatic in a daredevil costume. Get him to kill Foggy Nelson and Gloria." And that will bring him out of hiding, which it does, but not in the way that Kingpin wants. And when that doesn't work, his next step is to hire this guy. Well, not hire him, but to to get Nuke, uh, who is imbalanced, to just blow up Hell's Kitchen. That's basically all he's doing, is blowing up Hell's Kitchen, just to get Daredevil out from the shadows, just so that he can destroy him again. The only problem I have with this and Kingpin is those purple shorts. Now, they're purple in my in my version. I'm assuming they're purple on the Unlimited as well. I don't I don't know whether he borrowed them from Bruce Banner, um, but you know, of all the things he could have been wearing, <laughs> that one I that I have serious issues with that. Serious issues. Yeah, with that. they could just be a, a callback to the classic. You know, villains dressed in green and purple, and green didn't work as well. <laughs> I suppose so, but they could have thought of something. I mean, they could have put him in a tracksuit or something. <laughs> but yeah. And you know, Ben Urick has an amazing story arc as well, doesn't he? I mean, he goes from being this really honest, forthright journalist, and then ends up having horrible things happen to him. You know, he gets his hand broken. He sees the, cor- the corrupt cop beaten within the inch of his life. Then he gets a phone call where he has to listen to the nurse, who is who is straight out of a James Bond movie, isn't she? She's straight out of a James Bond movie, you know, that henchman kind of person, ringing up and just and just telling, uh, just letting him listen to the last rattles of this man's breath while she strangles him. And then his wife almost gets strangled, so much so that he gets so wound up that he kills that corrupt cop in the jail. And then after that, realizes he's just got to do the story. I mean, he has a he has an amazing arc as well, don't mm-hmm. you think? Oh yeah, this isn't. I mean, it is a Daredevil story, and Daredevil his supporting cast has generally been pretty limited. Yeah, right. I mean, there's you know, there's usually Daredevil, Foggy, and 
whatever uh, woman Marvel's biggest horn dog is chasing at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And that's about it. Yeah. This time, they're all there. Like you said, so much of this is, you know, they talk about the deconstruction and that. They didn't just deconstruct the hero. Like they tear Matt Murdock apart to the point that he's lost it. Yeah. Right. He's accusing Foggy of these guys. He thinks he's talking to Foggy when it's the time voice. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things I love about Daredevil is he refuses to stay broken and he pulls himself back together. Yeah. Starting when his eyes open at the bottom of the river in that cab. Yeah. Right. That's what helps him regain his focus. Ben Urich, it's threatening his wife. Yeah. You put Doris in jeopardy? You know, it's not the happiest of marriages, but now you're that's in what it takes. Yeah. Yeah, like you, you put Doris in jeopardy, and he was coming after that nurse with a razor. Yeah, like that—that's where the gloves come off for him, literally. Like the bandage came off his hand for that. Yeah, Karen Page was at her worst. Yeah, and even after she turned in Matt Murdock, she's like, "No, Matt will pull me out of this," and she goes back, and they do. Like Foggy and Matt get her out of this. We see Foggy coming into his own, going, "Yeah, you know, he took that job because it's a great job, but this is not a legitimate business." Yeah, and he's ready to do it. Meanwhile, the kingpin out there trying to push everyone over the edge and trying to crack it, the fact that he's failing really shatters him, right? Like, he, he's got nothing or really nothing left of this. He was building respect. He was getting the legitimacy. He was almost at the point where he could do most of his empire legitimately. Yeah. And then they break the story. Yeah, but don't you think there's a great mirror between uh, the beginning of the story where, although it's not a perfect mirror, in the sense that if they take, they destroy Matt Murdock. He destroys Matt Murdock's life over a couple of pages, whereas whereas his his life gets not destroyed, but he has a setback over the one page. But it's a similar mm-hmm. kind of thing. Did, did you yeah. did you see that that kind of mirroring of what happens to him as 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 it happened to Matt in the beginning? Yeah, and it's I was seeing it more as like an echo than a mirror. Oh yeah, right? he sure. was beating on Matt Murdock slowly. Mm-hmm. And as he's doing that and going after Matt's friends and his neighborhood, mm. like they said, you put Hell's Kitchen in, in jeopardy. Mm. And that is what brings Matt right back in the public eye. Yeah. And he comes back hard. That, where you put Hell's Kitchen in danger, Matt Murdock does not hold back. No. And that's what happened. Matt, Ben, all these guys, Captain America to a degree when he's, yeah. you know, you, you trash the American ideal. Mm. And then there's Cap back. Yeah. And he's in on this. This says so much to me about you know, the true core of a hero and that, you know, it's not the powers that do it. It's the mindset. Sure. Because Ben Yurick, Ben Yurick has often been, you know, a good reporter and a smart man, but he can be intimidated off a story. Yeah. Here he pulls it together and Ben is a hero. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. He kills a guy, but for the right reasons, right? It's, he was in a kill or be killed situation and he just does not have the kind of training Matt has to figure out how to subdue without killing. He just had to fight back as hard as he could, yeah. or he was dead, right? Karen gets her life back together because of her relationships with Matt and Foggy, right? There's just... I mean, that, that, that you know, those, those couple of panels that uh, Foggy and Karen share, it says so much for Foggy's character, isn't it? He's like, mm-hmm. where are you? I'll come and get you. It's just, you know, there's no hesitation, no nothing, and he realizes that, you know, she's done horrible things, and she's... She's a drug addict, but still, you know, you're coming back with me. Your family, you're coming back with me. And, you know, uh, so, you know, obviously there's that Foggy and Gloria romance, which is, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I mean, essentially for me, that, that, that was to get Gloria out of the way so that Matt could then uh, have, uh, have, you know, Karen could become Matt's girlfriend. But it was done in such a natural way that actually you, you, you believe that they would fall in love, you know, they were pushed mm-hmm. together. 
in a situation and and their their relationship grows almost naturally over over these pages so you know it doesn't feel forced at all mm-hmm. it's it, this is just it's just a marvelous marvelous mm-hmm. story it is and so much of it i mean frank miller deserves a lot of the credit he's got for writing daredevil mm-hmm. But he's the first one to give credit to David Mazzucchelli. I mean, as I said, oh my God. there's yeah. so much intercutting here that it's almost hard to synopsize because yeah. I was just flipping through the yeah. issues and it was going back and forth. Yeah. That's not the way the scripts work. No. Mazzucchelli, like Miller said, he wouldn't do that to an artist as having so many scene changes on one page because it's hard to compose the shots, right? It, it's harder to establish where they're at each time. There's so much going on. But Mazzucchelli read it and said, no, this will be a better book if I do it this way. Yeah. And he took something that is so challenging that a lot of writers won't give it to an artist because it's too tough to do on a monthly schedule. Yeah. And Mazzucchelli just delivered without being asked. Yeah, it's it's so right. cinematic. It's it's amazing. I mean, the yeah. of it. if you go to the issue, the, the purgatory issue, uh, and, and you know, it starts with um, Matt in that, uh, in that cheap hotel, and he's running through situations in his head. What's he, what he's going to do? What's happened to him? How am I going to deal with it? And you get to the third page, and there's that one panel of the doorknob, <laughs> just the one panel of the doorknob, which never turns because obviously Matt doesn't go out. And the next panel is him on the bed saying, I'm tired. But if you look at that panel, there's nothing else in that panel apart from the bed and Matt. See, so he's just conveying to you that his world basically is that small at this moment in time. And it's, <laughs> it's just mentally so difficult for him to actually get out of that funk. It's just this, you know... Did you read the new Hawkeye, the Fraction R Hawkeye? Ah, uh, yes, I did for this podcast. It was an earlier episode. I see so much Mazzucchelli in Aha's art, and I do, and I see especially from this, and to a degree from Batman Year One, the way the way you know there are minimal lines used to convey form, motion, emotion. It's it's. It's a tour de force. You know, I, I always kick myself that I didn't buy the artist's edition. If I had to buy any artist's edition, this would be the book to buy it for. This would mm-hmm. be the book to buy it for. Oh, yeah. Or even just the look on Ben Yurick's face, and you could see how it, it's isolated. When he's on the phone. When he's on the phone, keeps absolutely. Cl- absolutely. Yeah, he keeps closing in. So, yeah, there's editors out there arguing about whether or not Ben can keep his job because of his behavior. Yeah, yeah and it all becomes background noise. Yeah, he's not processing any of that. He's just hearing... Lieutenant Manolas was ready to tell his story, and he's being killed right now, and I'm listening to it happen. Yeah, and it's it's amazing, because what happens is, throughout that scene, you get closer and closer, but his face gets blockier and blockier. And then that final panel, he's, you know, he's colored red, you know. that. Mm-hmm. Fun. And if you see any of uh, Mazzucchelli's comic work afterwards, he gets more and more abstract as time goes on. And you can see the beginnings of that. And he's got that same expression on his face where when he's uh, when he's talking to Robertson, who's saying, you know, go and see a psychiatrist. His face is unchanged from from the page before. It's just <laughs> I don't know. I'm just flipping through this book now and I can't I really can't take my take my eyes off it. <laughs> Did you get the Judge Dredd reference? No, I didn't. I haven't actually read any Judge Dredd. All right. OK, so I've put this down. This is just a bit of fun, really. So this is page 162 in my hardcover collection, which is from the um, Armageddon issue. And uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's the second last panel on the page where he basically they're depicting the, uh, the building which the army's in. And there's mm-hmm. a big eagle on the top 
of a black building. Can you can you see that? And yeah, I know the panel yeah, you're talking yeah. about. And that's the the first thing that came to my mind was that was uh, that was the judge thing. Uh, that was where the judges came from in Mega City One. It's a, their building looks exactly like that, exactly like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know if I've if I've put any more notes about this that we 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 haven't already uh, already covered. Yeah, I mean, th- this is one of the first deconstructed heroes, and one of the more extreme. Yep. The heroes have been beaten down, but there's very few who are actually driven insane before they come back. Yeah. This is the first appearance of Daredevil's mother. Oh, yeah. And actually acknowledging, you know, because it it's long thought that he had a mother who became a nun, but in this one, it's very obvious, you know, and he, and he finds mm-hmm. out as well that, it, you know, that she oh, is yeah, his mum. And, you know, when her heart st- skips a beat and she's lying. Yeah. Th- this is where... He learns it, and yeah. that is actually the original inspiration for the story. In your edition, have you read it in the front or back manner with you know how the story grew in Frank Miller's mind? Uh, there's very little uh, in this. In this. so, I've got the uh, the Marvel premiere hardcover, um, okay. and there's a foreword from uh, Ralph Macchio, Macchio, mm-hmm. which doesn't mention anything about it. And then there's that bit about uh, Frank Miller's what he said about Mazzucchelli. Basically, you've got to mm-hmm. watch this guy, whatever he does, I will be buying it and you should too kind of thing. But nothing yeah. else really. Well, this, for him, the, the smallest idea leads to big stories. Like his Batman The Dark Knight Returns came about because he realized he was older than Batman and yeah. that was unacceptable. Yeah, I, I read that one. Yeah, I read yeah. that Yeah, This one, this came out because he figured, okay, this guy's a vigilante by night, but a defense attorney by day. So on the one hand, he's flouting the law. On the other hand, he's enforcing it and upholding it. and these are Frank Miller's words. Uh, it's not necessarily my opinion. According to Frank Miller, the only person or the only people in the world who could be that hypocritical are the Catholics. <laughs> and it had never been established that Daredevil was Catholic, so he figured, well, that's got to happen now. Oh, really? Is this the first sort of reference to that? Because isn't that a big part mm-hmm. of his, um, his, uh, his character going forwards from here? From this point on, yeah. Oh, right. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Prior to this, that wasn't there. Mm. I mean, in the Stan Lee era... There might be that you know the odd comments to to praying because mm. that's just you know a big part of Stanley's belief system, so it would come mm. out in his heroes. Mm. But this was the first time that a specific faith was assigned to Matt Murdock. Right. Okay. So he was you know somewhere in the realm of you know Christianity or at least believing in God more so than Christian. Because as I said, I think a lot of that was just you know Stanley subliminal, and I believe Stanley is Jewish. I could be wrong about that. No, he is. He is Jewish. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this was a case where, yeah, that was it. Frank Miller said, okay, and what story would that happen? Well, you know, he felt that some of the most hypocritical ones are the born-agains, so, okay, let's have Daredevil born again. How does that happen? Well, first you have to kill him before he can be born again. And the only villain he had up to this point who could do that really was the Kingpin. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is not like other villains. You know, if Bullseye found out who Matt Murdock was, well, you know, as he did and kind of worked him out of the realization in the Frank Miller one, his instinct was, okay, now I can get him to him anytime and not just when he's in the red. Yeah. Right. It's a way to find him. Yeah. As, as you said, Kingpin doesn't react that way. I mean, three weeks from now, we're going to see a very different reaction from another villain. Kingpin, at first, he doesn't need the hero to know that he knows. I mean, we didn't really play up on it. It takes time for the Kingpin to dismantle Matt Murdock's life. The captions actually say it's six months later. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Matt Murdock's bad day where everything falls apart is six months after the Kingpin finds out who he is. Yeah. He's been pushing it and assembling it that entire time. So, 
it's a very different kind of villain. As you said, he's a lot more sinister because he is calculating. He doesn't put on a costume and showboat. No. He would rather pull the strings from a distance, and he only got up close and personal when Matt showed up in his office. And if push came to shove, he could claim, yeah, this crazy homeless guy came in trespassing. I just defended myself. Yeah. It It's just a very different perspective on the heroes and the villains. And I think, you know, reading it, might as well get into our personal stories here. Yeah. I started getting back into comics when the movies were coming out. And by the time the Daredevil movie had come out, between Spider-Man and Daredevil, I'd already started reading Daredevil because I'd heard great things about the Bendis run and mm. went back and started reading the Frank Miller run. Which is a very good run. The Bendis mm-hmm. run is very good. Yeah. Bendis is great. It actually started with Kevin Smith because I'd heard great things about it. Found out Kevin Smith, whose films I enjoyed, had written Daredevil. Yeah. So I went back to that, read Kevin Smith's and up through the Bendis run, heard great things about Frank Miller, so went back, started collecting those and hit this story and that was it. Mm. Like if this is the kind of story you can tell with Daredevil, when I put this book down, that's when I started jumping on eBay and, you know, milehighcomics.com and everything I could find. I literally put this book down and then racked up about $800 in credit card debt going online saying where where the where are the other issues? Everything I can get. So I found out everything that was in trade paperback, ordered that from, you know, Amazon and other online retailers. Called my local comic guy, said, what have you got in stock? Put it all aside for me if I don't have it. Got the rest online. And then, yeah, from there, Mile High Comics, eBay just started getting the individual issues. So Daredevil was the first character where I managed to get the complete run. Wow. So I, you know, in trades when I can, just for cost-effective things. So I've got the first four essentials. Yeah. I've got Frank Miller's run in trades. And I've got, you know, from Kevin Smith through the Bendis run in trades, except for... You know, during the Bendis run, I started buying it by the issues, mm. and then there's the the Bob Gale story with the jester that never got collected in trades because they looked at the sales and said, ah, apparently nobody wants it. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, my story with Born Again is a little different, actually, uh, compared to my other stories where I, you know, I came across and I bought all the comics I was waiting for, kind of thing. But um, I, I, I'm not, as I said, I'm not the biggest Daredevil fan. I'm a big X Men guy, actually, and Batman. And uh, I had Batman Year One. And uh, I was in the comic shop. It wasn't my, my, my normal comic shop. I went to the other one in town. Uh, and I saw this trade uh, on the spinner rack. And it said, oh, hang on, Daredevil. And it said, Frank Miller, Mazzucchelli. And I said, well, I like Frank Miller. And I like Mazzucchelli's art. I love it. So I'll buy it. And, you know, um, I still got that trade uh, with, my, with my comics uh, downstairs. But, but I was blown away by this story. I was blown away so much that I started buying Daredevil at that point. And I uh, can't remember, it probably was the Bender stuff at that point, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I just thought this was a perfect story. And, and that bit, you know, I could, I could easily read this story and put this down and never read, another, I'm, uh, never read another Daredevil story again and still be satisfied that I've, uh, that I've had, that in myself I've had a, a, a full story of this character. Um, yeah, that's true. Although I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who can read this story start to end and not want to read another Daredevil story. <laughs> Uh, exactly you know i mean uh so it's so well done and i've heard great things about the anna nocetti how do you say her surname anna nocetti am i saying it right yeah anna nocetti yeah nocetti um i've heard great things about her run that i mean how do you follow something like this holy cow Mm -hmm. but apparently that's a great run and i will get to reading that someday yeah parts of it have been collected at least the acts of vengeance and the Typhoid Mary stories. Because uh, did she create Typhoid Mary? She did. Ah. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Anne Nocenti and John, John Romita Jr. Jr. Yeah. 
Great stuff. This, I mean, this definitely de- deserves to be where it is. It deserves to be higher, I suppose, if, if they mm-hmm. take into account just your and my vote. But um, it definitely deserves to be as high as it is, mm-hmm. for sure. Oh, yeah. The impact this had, mm. you know, reading Daredevil's continuity, like as you said, his Catholicism is such a fundamental piece of him now. Mm. That comes from here. Yeah. The return of Karen Page, who was practically forgotten. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was the first love interest. To put it in Spider-Man terms, think like Liz Allen's back. What? The? I know, yeah. Or more like Betty Brandt, because they were actually involved. But yeah, like, you know, Karen Page was back and... Not in a good way. No, not like we'd seen before. This this whole thing is really Karen Page's fault. Yeah. Right. She was the first domino to tip. Yeah. Um, uh, just amazing. And uh, the fact that he is willing to forgive her as well for what has happened. I mean, that speaks mm-hmm. volumes about him as well. Yeah. It's just, it's just great stuff. I mean, this is, this is, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what. To say. Yeah. Apart from saying that, I'm very pleased I read it. I'm very pleased I reread it, and rereading it again and again and again for <laughs> this podcast was not an issue. <laughs> yeah, all. I. I am very pleased it's on Marvel Digital Unlimited because my copy of the trade paperback is ready to fall apart. I know. I I bought it on Comixology as well. There was a set. I just bought it on Comixology. I've got it everywhere now. <laughs> absolutely everywhere great stuff yeah it is and there there's so much meat here i mean i know if we move into the the part of the podcast that i've so shamelessly stolen from mission log a roddenberry star trek podcast which is doing fantastic things going through every animated or live action representation of star trek you really should track it down and listen to it if you have any interest in discussing tv and movies if we look at whether there's messages or morals or meanings we could take out of this every single character here really learns a lesson. Yeah. Like right across Matt at the beginning, his work as a lawyer is one of the things that makes him happiest in his life. That's been taken away by the end. And he's got the biggest grin on his face he's had since the first Stanley issue. A grin you will never see again, especially if you get through the Bendis run. Yeah. Well, not and believe it. I think he he smiled about to the same degree a couple of times during the, the Mark Wade Chris Somni run. Oh, he smiled a lot in that run, actually. But in between, he never smiled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is another great run on Daredevil. Yeah, very good. Very good run. But yeah, we've got that. Karen Page has learned what really matters, right? She has essentially beaten her drug habit by the time this is done and come out of it with Matt and Foggy's help. We see Foggy Nelson's strength of character. Foggy is easily my favorite supporting character in any comic book title. Yeah. Right. Of all the supporting cast, he... He's one of those guys, he's never had powers because his character works best without them. Yeah. He is the normal guy stuck in this world who will stand by his friend. He's, a, he's, a, the, right he's the audience thing. point of view kind of guy. He's, he's our point of view, isn't he? He's our reference, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not, you know, we look at the other people who filled in that role. Mm. You know, this isn't Flash Thompson who ends up being Venom. This isn't Mary Jane who, on the covers of solicited but unreleased issues, is wearing the Iron Spider armor. Mm-hmm. Right. We've got Pepper Potts, who was Rescue. Mm. Right, Most of our supporting characters, at one point or another, have gotten superpowers. Foggy Nelson works best as a regular guy, sometimes fighting cancer. Yeah. And there, there's so much about Foggy and who he is coming through in here. And, you know, the Kingpin, he was in a very good position on the first page of the first issue. Yeah. Had he left Matt Murdock alone, his position would have been at least that healthy at the end. But, but he couldn't resist. He just couldn't resist, could he? That's the, that's the thing. Yeah. That's his... That's his. That's his failure. He just couldn't resist the ability mm-hmm. to tear a good man down. That's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. 
uh, he wants to tear good. Everyone has a sort of resurrection in this uh, in this story, don't they? Except for Kingpin, yeah. who goes in the opposite direction. So you know, Matt Murdock gets torn down and then comes uh, rises up again. Same thing happens to Ben. Same thing happens to Karen. You know, she has mm-hmm. you know she fights her drug uh, drug addiction and comes out the other end. And then you know, Kingpin goes the opposite way, doesn't he? He starts low. He's mm-hmm. high in the middle, and then it goes down again to the bottom. It's just masterful. He does. Masterful. Yeah, not as low as he, he will be when Chichester takes over for 297 through 300. But I've read some of those. I've, I've read a couple of those issues, not all of them. I've, I certainly had the issue when uh, Daredevil got his uh, armored costume, because I remember that cover mm-hmm. was a cardstock cover with neon uh, paint on yeah. it that would glow in the dark, so that devil character that was following him around would glow on that yeah. cover if you turn the light off. But I haven't read anything else of that run. It had oh. good Scott McDaniel art, if I remember. That certainly that issue did. It did. It's the Chichester run starts with the fall of the Kingpin in two ninety seven to three hundred. Oh right. Which is a great one. That's actually potentially the first trade paperback Marvel ever collected. Oh really? If not the first, it is one of the first. That was So should I read that? Should I read those ones? Yeah, the the two ninety seven to three hundred I would definitely track down. Okay. Chichester starts off strong and it's I don't know. I I read the Chichester run in the span of about three days. Oh right, because you know it was an eBay lot, start to finish the Chichester run, and it. I have to go back and reread the rest of his run without reading those first four issues to judge it fairly. No, sure, because his first four are so much stronger than the rest. Yeah, right. Are, are the rest really as bad as I remember them, or were they just overshadowed? Because I went, you know, Miller, Nocenti, Chichester's strong opener, and then the rest of Chichester. Oh right, okay. Because I think uh, the fall from Grace uh, is is one of the story arcs, isn't it? And that gets um, mm-hmm. that gets uh, savaged by most most uh, commentators. Although I personally haven't read it, so I really shouldn't comment on it myself. So. Yeah, so much of this is a lot of is just about the core of who are you? Yeah, like even you know we we see Sister Maggie. This is you know she's doing good work as a nun. Uh, you can question why she's not a part of Matt's life anymore. Although Mark Wade did a phenomenal job of answering that question with. You know, with Chris Somney on art, mm-hmm. right? I would definitely point to that issue. Frankly, the whole Wade Somney run, mm-hmm. right? It, the, I can't think of anyone here, like any character in this story, who comes out the other side the same as when they went in. You know, with the possible exceptions of your J. Jonah Jameson or Joe Robertson, who you know are maybe in one or two scenes anyway. But I think I think you're right. I mean, um, just going back, that is the one of the best portrayals of uh, uh, of Jameson, as in. Someone actually taking that character seriously for a minute and not using them as comic relief. Yeah. That is what an yeah. editor would say to their reporter if their reporter was starting to chicken out. That's the kind of guy you would expect him to be, not the lunatic who just wants to get Spider-Man in jail or whatever. Yeah, this is what you could point out to to say why Jameson has been able to maintain that position despite his crusade against Spider-Man. Mm. It's like if you take Spider-Man out of the equation, mm. Jameson is actually a fantastic editor-in-chief. Yeah. Right, we, and that shows up primarily in Daredevil because Ben Urich is the other regular staffer at the Bugle that we see. Yeah. So either that, or you know Jessica Jones and the Pulse when Spider Man's out of it there. Mm. Right. Then you can see Jameson is great. Yeah. There, there's a lot to like about him, and that's for me seeing Jameson as a respectable character, and as, you know not as the comic relief you just described him as. That starts and in some ways almost ends here. Yeah. But it was it was a nice touch uh, and gave some credibility to the whole story. Actually, that every character was taken seriously, even Turk 
for the first time in his life, Turf actually does something by stabbing uh, Matt in the stomach. You know, normally Turk was comic relief, wasn't he? But actually, he, yeah. he, he delivers him an almost fatal blow, totally within character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, you know. Yeah, yeah. Turk was the small-time thug with aspirations. Yeah. Here, Matt was just in such rough shape that he got the better of him. Yeah. And imagine if he knew that he'd stabbed Daredevil. Oh, yeah. He, and again, this says so much about the, the state that Matt's in, because we've seen him, you know, for him, taking Turk down has almost been like a reflexive afterthought. Mm. It'll be, hey, yeah, it's me. Tell me what you know. You don't want to? Here. Ow. Yeah. Tell me what you know. Okay. He could just play him. But now, like, you take the mask off, you don't get that fear reaction. And Matt was so far off his game that Turk got the better of him. Yeah. Great it's, stuff. Great stuff. This is, I mean, if, if we want to go through why it landed at this point in the rankings. It's pretty obvious from the way we're talking about it now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we've got entertainment value. Oh, yes. Yeah. In spades. Uh, we've got, yeah, impact on continuity. Admittedly, if you never read an issue of Daredevil, you probably won't see any fallout from this. No, sure. But if you read virtually any issue of Daredevil after this point, you will. Poor Karen Page. Poor Karen Page. Yeah, this is massively important, at mm. least to Daredevil's corner mm. of the Marvel Universe, if not the Marvel Universe at large. And in terms of the meanings, like we said, there, there's messages for everyone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it, you know, it comes back to the agency that Emily Middleton was discussing with Captain America Winter Soldier. Mm. When people are taking agency and stepping forward and saying, yeah, I'm in charge of my life, mm. that's when, when things move forward. And yeah. it's almost, Daredevil has basically taken away Kingpin's agency, unintentionally, but when this starts, Kingpin's in complete control. But his irrational treatment of Daredevil and Matt Murdock and his reaction to it is what causes him to lose the faith of his lieutenants, and he's losing the agency and having a hard time keeping things in line. Right? That's where his yeah. life starts to fall apart. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, if anything, the reason this is only number four is because Daredevil, on the whole, is not as popular as a lot of the other characters, and there just weren't as many people familiar with it to vote for it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm surprised it got this high. For that very same reason. Uh, you and I would have voted for it, but I'm just amazed. Well, I'm very happy that it, considering what has been on this countdown, what stories have been on there, um, I'm just uh, very happy that it, it's got it's it's got an almost rightful place. Almost, as I say, should have been higher. But mm-hmm. I implore everyone, if anyone hasn't read this story, you owe it to yourself to read it at least once. You won't regret it. Yeah, it'll be like the Lay's Potato Chip Challenge. Just try to only read yeah, it once. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, every time I read it, I pick on something new. It's just great stuff. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. It is. And and it's so – it's dense. I mean, people complain about decompressed storytelling oh, these yeah, days. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not, not, it, if you were yeah. to tell the story today, this wouldn't be a seven-issue story. This would be a seven-year run. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm glad it's – I mean, because the pacing is, is perfect, you know. It's just, and, and it runs at a nice clip and no panel is wasted. You know, there are some talking heads, but they're, they're, it's just, they're used to effect as opposed to a, uh, a way of padding out an issue. Oh, it's just, it's mm-hmm. just masterful. Just masterful. Yeah. There's anything that is not about moving the plot forward here is about moving a character forward. Yeah. Right. There, there's not a wasted panel in this entire book. And the interesting foreshadowing, it's a bit like, remember when we spoke about the Wolverine mini, about uh, Frank Miller's art and the changing, the way his art changed in a couple of panels, which reflected the way he was drawing in Sin City. And there's, there's this character in one of the Kingpin's goons who speaks in the most amazing English. 
you know, pleased to understand, Lewis, all consumed are delighted with your aptitude of your performance in the Manolis affair. I myself, you know, the way he uses English. And there, there are characters in Sin City, there are two of them, uh, two henchmen who speak in exactly the same way, you know, very <laughs> sort of grand English that you wouldn't expect from two-bit thugs. So it's interesting to see that they took that further. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Lovely. Yeah. I'm not sure if we've, I'm not sure we've gushed enough about this. <laughs> I'm not sure we're getting the message across, but I think we may have to gush some more. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really glad, thankful for giving me uh, the opportunity to talk about what might be one of my favorite oh. comic stories ever. Oh, yeah, it is mine. Mm. And it's, I mean, like you, I was pleasantly surprised that it landed as high just because of Daredevil's popularity. Yeah, exactly. But it wouldn't surprise me if we took everybody who voted for these, yeah, sat them down, handed them a copy and said, no, you must read this, mm. and then made them vote again, mm. it wouldn't surprise me if this went back to number one. Sure. Even making them read all 75 if they haven't already. Yeah. Like, I, I hope they don't adapt this in, uh, in the Netflix series. Because I don't, I like Karen Page on in the Netflix series so much. I don't want this to happen to her, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, excellent. All right. Well, Fractures, thanks for joining us again. And you know, those of you out there who are undoubtedly happy with what they've been hearing, well, the good news is Fractures will be joining us again in the future, possibly soon. Yes, sir. For those of you who are reading along at home, next week we are discussing Spider-Man: Craven's Last Hunt which is in Web of Spider-Man 31 and 32, Amazing Spider-Man 293 and 294, and Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man 131 and 132. It's reprinted in Craven's Last Hunt trade paperbacks and hardcovers on Comixology and in Marvel Digital Unlimited. Please feel free to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It really does help the shows get noticed. Feel free to join our Facebook discussion forum, which will persist after the end of this podcast series, just in case people find it later and want to come back and discuss things at a later date. And finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one -on -one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.